We're reading from Micah chapter 6 today and in the Red Bible, page 659. The other Red Bible, the one that has the rectangle on the front, page 934. So one Bible, it's 659. The other Bible, it's 934. And I think it's up there. Yes. Uh, there's one gem as I read in verse 8 and that's the one the verse that's on the front of the bulletin. So you'll see that as I read it. All right, so it's 934 or 659. Chapter 6 of Micah. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, O mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, counseled, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression? the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Listen, the Lord is calling to the city and to fear your name is wisdom. Heed the rod and the one who appoints it. Am I still to forget, O wicked house, your ill-gotten treasures and the short ephah which is accursed? Shall I acquit a man with dishonest scales, with a bag of false weights? Her rich men are violent, her people are liars, and their tongues speak deceitfully. Therefore, I have begun to destroy you, to ruin you because of your sins. You will eat but not be satisfied. Your stomach will still be empty. You will store up but save nothing because what you save I will give to the sword. You will plant but not harvest. You will press olives but not use the oil on yourselves. You will crush grapes but not drink the wine. You have observed the statutes of Omri and all the practices of Ahab's house 
and you have followed their traditions. Therefore, I will give you over to ruin and your people to derision. You will bear the scorn of the nations. Now, we have just sung Jesus Rocks the World and it was fairly, it was fairly upbeat, wasn't it? Um, and then we think about the passage that um, we've just read, that Jackie read for us today. And we're just kind of going to change the tone a little bit here, actually. Yeah, it's a, it's a different tone. Thanks, Peter. Servant-hearted elder, Peter. Thank you. Yeah, so um, as we start to grapple with this section, it is, it is exciting to sing and praise the Lord, but it's also uh, a, a serious time as well to just be a bit reflective in life at this time. That's the tone of this sermon. So we'll, we'll start to do a bit of thinking together about this passage. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for this time we share now. Thank you that we have an opportunity to uh, remember our place before you. And Lord, we pray that we learn uh, from your word now. And we pray that you'd help us to grow to be the kind of people that you want us to be. And we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've got your outline there, you'll find that handy, if only, as Benjamin said, so you can just tick off where I go, where we're, where we're up to, how far Peter's got to go before he gets to the end. But um, at the introduction point, I've noted that um, the topic of knowing and doing, and I'm wondering if you've ever had the experience where uh, you know what you should be doing, but you've found a way to kind of avoid that and begin to do something else, maybe something a little less important, maybe something less urgent. I know I should be doing the dishes at times, but I also find that the World Cup soccer's on as well. That might not be your problem. I know I should pick up the kids from school on time, uh, but I also know that Ross has got his licence now and he's pretty good at going to get them for me. I know I should uh, give some thought to my health and get up early in the morning to ride my bike, but I also need my beauty sleep and I need plenty of that. I know what I should be doing, but I find some other less important, less significant things, uh, other things that I can easily, easily do instead. Now, Israel was a little bit like that too. You know, the dog didn't eat their copy of the Bible. They knew God's will for their lives. They knew what God wanted. That wasn't the problem that they didn't know. The problem was that they, they knew what they should have done, but they did something different. They did less important things, they did less significant things, and they didn't always do things with the right heart. Let's come and see what God's word has to say to that, that rebellious people and see if, we can, see if we can take something from this for ourselves to, to sharpen up our own lives under the Lord. Well, the first point in my sermon outline is that God has been faithful. That's the broad message of verses 1 to 5. It begins with a scene that resembles a kind of, a kind of cosmic court there in verses 1 and 2. We read, Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear you, mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. 
For the Lord has a case against his people. He's lodging a charge against Israel. Now, the mountains have have been there for ages. And so, in some ways, they're, they're kind of like a type of witness of Israel's whole life. They've, they've seen it. They've been there. And they're pictured here as, as almost a type of jury within a court to hear from Israel in verse 1, their complaints, and then from the Lord in verse 2. God has an accusation or a case against Israel. This language in verse 2, the Lord has a case, reminds us this, um, this charge grows out of their prior covenant relationship with God. Here in Micah 6, we see this charge from God against his people. But what is Israel's charge first against the Lord? What, what, what does Israel have against God? That's what the Lord wants to know there in verse 3, if you're following along. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. And what is the answer in the text? Well, it's a trick question, isn't it? Because there is no answer. There is no charge that they bring against the Lord. It's because the Lord instead has shown his steadfast, faithful love to his people throughout their history. And we see some of that in verses 3 through to 5. In fact, the Lord underscores his goodness to Israel in five different ways. From verses 4 and 5, that concerns the Lord's great salvation event in the past when he brought them up out of Egypt, redeemed them from the land of slavery. The third act of God's faithfulness there is sending leaders to his people, Moses, Aaron and Miriam. Fourthly, in verse 5, we read, My people remember what Balak, king of Moab, counselled and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. That takes us back to the wilderness wanderings in Numbers 22 when King uh, Balak asks Balaam to come and uh, bring a curse upon God's people. That's what he counselled Balaam to do. But what God does is actually reverse that curse and instead uh, ultimately brings a blessing on Israel instead. And so God's saying, look, where someone was counselled a curse, I was faithful and I blessed. And finally, at the end of verse 5, this is one of these key words in the Bible. Remember your journey from, I'm going to call it Shittim, or Shittim, uh, to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. At this point in the story, Israel's taken after some rebellion from their wilderness wanderings. And God delivers them to a place called Gilgal in the Promised Land in Joshua chapter 5. We learn that that's the time they get circumcised. That's the time when the manna from heaven sort of dries up and they start to eat the produce in the promised land. In other words, the Lord's been faithful and he's delivered his people into the good land. And so the message from Micah is that they shouldn't have uh, any complaints against the Lord, that somehow the Lord's burdened them or wearied them, for the Lord has been faithful to his people. And yet, although the Lord God had been gracious and generous to his people, on the whole, it seems to be clear that they didn't appreciate it. It's kind of, it's it's cheap to them. And that 
that kind of ungrateful attitude where they've been given some grace and they don't recognise it. It kind of reminds me of a a kid and their tantrums, actually. Uh, There was a story I've got to share with you about a a birthday party at preschool and somebody brought out a lovely birthday cake. But one of the little boys there started to get all upset and the fat little tears rolled down his cheeks as he said, I wanted chocolate cake. (laughs) And the preschool teacher said, oh, a little bit precious, are we? Here's a guy, a lovely birthday cake's coming out, but but he doesn't quite get his chocolate cake. And so Israel's there. They've received the grace of God to deliver them into the promised land, but they're just ungrateful. Israel received God's grace, but they didn't seem to appreciate it for the grace that it was. Now, as we step back and think about our response to God's grace, that's... This is, a, this is a, the point in the sermon where it's worth thinking about not so much Israel but our own hearts as we think about God's love and grace to us. Are we ever tempted to doubt God's grace and love? If your health or my health takes a turn for the worse, perhaps we get a diagnosis that we don't like, are we ever tempted to think that maybe God doesn't care? What if we find that life is hard and we find that some of our key relationships in life are difficult ones or strained? The people we care for might be just too distant from us. Do we ever think that God doesn't care about maybe that complicated situation? Or if we're in an uncomfortable or a confusing stage of life, some people go through midlife crises where they, they have dreams that are perhaps they're realising that they're not going to be fulfilled. Do people start to doubt God's goodness and care for them in those seasons of life when there's a bit of disillusionment and confusion? Do we believe that God understands our situation and cares for us? Could we be tempted to let difficult circumstances be the things that start to shake or challenge our view of God's care for us? And what are we to do if we're tempted to doubt God's goodness? Well, I think the key is to keep coming back to God's word, which reminds us about God's care for us as his people. Uh, The Apostle Paul reminds the church that God does care and he's he's shown his care to us as well. In 1 Peter, he reminds us that our redemption is a bit different to those of uh, ancient Israel. We're not redeemed from out of Egypt. We've been redeemed from an empty way of life. And it's not with perishable things, Peter says, such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. The Apostle Paul reminds us of a similar thing in 1 Corinthians. He says, you are not your own, you are bought with a price. And so it comes at a great cost to God to redeem us, to make us his children. And so God's word reminds us, if we're tempted to doubt God's love and care for us, uh, we have been bought at a price. God's shown us his kindness in Christ. Jesus has redeemed us from an empty way of life, washed our sins away and given us new life as the children of God. So God does care for us. Of course, when we live in a fallen world, we'll naturally experience the complications of sin and yet we're reminded that even then we have life with God, we enjoy life with his people, And we have hope in life as we look forward to his kingdom to come.
And so the challenge for us is to live in gratitude to God for his goodness and his kindness to us. That's, that's the challenge. It's not always easy when we're experiencing very difficult times, though. So what exactly does God require of his people there? That's the second point in my outline, if you're following along. What did God require of his people? In verses 6 to 8, Micah puts words in the mouth of Israel as they're confronted with God's love and faithfulness to them. And through Micah, in a way, Israel asks God about an appropriate response to him. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God, in verse 6? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Did you notice that there was an escalation in the terms that begins with the, the burnt offerings that grows to include thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil and finally even a, a human sacrifice which was condemned in the Old Testament something that God found detestable of the, the god Moloch who they offered their babies to, which is just awful. Sarc- sarcastically, they're saying together, God's demands are, are too excessive. The Lord God's asking too much in response to his grace. And perhaps they think they're already doing pretty well anyway. In verse 3, God asks, how have I burdened you? Maybe they think they're already at their limits. But their response to God's uh, love and faithfulness to them in this section doesn't really engage with some of the moral and the more heartfelt issues, does it? It sort of focuses just on their cultic worship at the temple. There's no mention of their ways of life that need to shape up and change. Repentance is not mentioned in this section and there's no sort of acknowledgement or awareness of God's grace to them or gratitude for his love. There's just a focus on doing things in, the, in, their, in their cultic worship at the temple. And so they can seem to be geared to serving the Lord in ways which are a bit tokenistic, a bit superficial. Bringing of offerings could be done uh, in a very routine way, couldn't it? It can be done without really having your heart in what you're doing. And yet loving the Lord from the heart is really the essence of a genuine relationship with God. Loving the Lord reflects something of of the quality of that relationship. Now Israel understood this. They understood this idea uh, at the top of their minds. They were challenged in Deuteronomy to actually love the Lord. And yet they preferred to focus on this superficial and tokenistic approach to God. And I think it's just an interesting little point at this, this stage to think in the sermon here really about this kind of thing, that they could just go through the motions, go through the routines, and there's just a little bit of, you know, keeping up appearances almost. And so it's, the funny thing about humanity is, that, you know, we're, we're coming some 3,000 years later, but um, our hearts also betray us too, don't we? We could go through the motions. We can do things a little bit tokenistically and not really have a genuine approach to the Lord. When we sing the songs here today, 
do we really, you know, think about singing praises to the Lord or are we getting wrapped up in other things? I mean, it's a good thing to sing, but it's, it's important that we actually remember a heartfelt response to God. The Lord notes that they know and they understand, in verse 8, their special relationship to him and what he expects from his people. In verse 8, we read, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And in the following verses, God outlines exactly the kind of response from his people that is appropriate. And what does the Lord require of you? Well, this is where Jackie talked about the one gem in the passage. Hopefully there's a few more gems, Jackie. But here's, one, here's a couple. To act justly, or the idea of doing justice. Not just, not just thinking about justice, having an armchair approach to justice, but actually having some justice taking shape. Now, some of their society's problems with justice are listed below in verses 10 and 11. You can have a quick squeeze at that. That's where the, the short EFAR comes up which I think is a measure that's just short-changing. Uh, verse 10, treasures of the wicked in the house of the wicked reminds us that some benefit economically through their exploitation and their mistreatment of the poor and the weak. People are getting ripped off. I heard of a situation where somebody had their, you know, those garage door buttons and they, they, they don't always work. And sometimes you just need to turn the back of it. Well, somebody took theirs back and they were charged a big price for the service and for the battery. They just got ripped off, you know. The person could have just said, look, just turn the thing at the back and it'll give it a go. Anyway, this was kind of characterising, well, not the garage door key button, they didn't have those in ancient Israel, but uh, this is the kind of thing that's going on there. There's uh, people are getting diddled. We see that in verse 11. Wicked scales and a bag of deceitful weights. It's like going to the butcher and he sticks his knife on the scales, you know, to weigh down the meat a bit more, or the, maybe the person on the other side with their finger lifting up the scales or something like that. When it comes to trading in goods and services, things are getting out of hand and corruption seems to be, become the norm in Israel. And, you know, that scenario there, that kind of decline, that spiralling down, that regression, reminds me of some uh, problems I heard about concerning mining operations in Broken Hill. Oh, really, you might be sitting there thinking, mining operations in Broken Hill? Well, hear me out. Uh, every, every year, we go to Broken Hill for a holiday. My wife was born there, her father was born there, he was on the mine since he was a kid. Now, you hear a few stories. And of course, the mines change in their production and over time, sometimes they start to drop off. They have to get remnant miners in to salvage the operations. But as the firms declined in their production, in, in their mines in Broken Hill, they threw off workers. They didn't need as many. And morale started to drop. It became a place where things were going to the pack, as they say. And during those days, some employees, they just stopped caring about their company and they started stealing from the site. They started to steal things like copper pipes and sell them on the side so they could make some extra money. And the people who did that and got caught got charged by the police with stealing. Tools got borrowed, but they, they, weren't, they were borrowed so they could, people could use them at home, but they weren't returned. 
And so some worker would go to the cupboard to get a, a tool out, a big angle grinder or something lethal like that, and they'd have the experience of old Mother Hubbard. Because when they got there, the cupboard was bare. And so unjust and corrupt behaviour increasingly just began to pervade and characterise the workplace. People stopped caring and things just headed south. And here in Micah 6, we're presented with a perspective like that. Overall life in Israel has just declined. Justice is hard to come by. Israel knew God's ways, that there was a, it's a different way to live. But on the whole, they failed to do justice. When Micah asks again, what does the Lord require of you? He also adds to love mercy. Now, if you, if you do anything, Benjamin's pretty good with his language. I noticed him looking at the Hebrew for this. So I thought I'd better look at the Hebrew this week too. This is to love hesed. You heard of that word before? It could also be pronounced chesed. This is God's, this is a special word in the Bible. This is the word that reflects God's faithfulness, his lovingness, his kindness, everything rich and good about God towards his people. That's the word. And so it could be translated mercy or to love kindness or some translations to love faithfulness. This is what God's people are called to be like. They're called to be like God in that respect. On the one hand, they're called to do justice, but this is a word about the kind of people that they're to be. Loving faithfulness is something that someone is. They're a, they're a loving person. That's who they are. And so this is an, an attitude of authenticity and genuineness that God's people are called to hold. They're not called to be the scoundrels of the world. They're called to be genuine in their love for the Lord and for his people. God models that virtue. He expresses it in his faithful and loving care for his people. And the people are called to cherish that virtue which God is the source of. This is, this is very special stuff that they're, trying to, they're called to emulate. And finally, Micah asks, what does the Lord require of you? He adds, to walk humbly with your God. This is the understanding that they know their place. God is to be treated as their God. To make his will supreme in their lives and to walk with God as their God. It recognises their covenant relationship with God, which is a bit like a marriage, that relationship, where somebody who's not family at one stage becomes family. That's how it was with God and his people. Out of all the nations of the world, he was their God. And so they're challenged to walk with the Lord. Now, at one level, the people knew all, all of this. Yet in verses 6 to 7, they trotted out the notion that what God required of them was excessive. Thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil. They knew what God wanted from them was a, a response from the heart, not a formality. Well, what about us? As Christians, we also have been called by God to be his faithful people. And we enjoy a very privileged situation as well, don't we? Our redemption comes through the precious blood of Christ, the forgiveness of sins. And we're, we're in Ephesians, we're told that we're among those who've received the riches of God's grace lavished upon us. 
It's a good word, that lavished word. Uh, it's a, a picture of Benjamin talked about the Westport Super Club. Did you have any ice cream for the Westport Super Club, Benjamin? Yeah, there was a bit of ice cream there because I know the youth group kids got the ice cream uh, leftovers on Friday night. And speaking of lavishing, they uh, got stuck into it and they weren't stingy, did they? They took their ice cream cone, they loaded it up. They lavished the ice cream on their ice cream cones. And then they came back for seconds too. God hasn't been stingy to us. The riches of his grace have been lavished upon us. And the Apostle Paul starts to engage with what should our response be to that lavishing of God's grace towards us. And he says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Israel didn't do that. They didn't, on the whole, live a life worthy of their calling. But in our privileged position as the people of the Lord today, our challenge is to live a life worthy of that noble calling. This is the call to live up to our names as Christians. If people know us as Christians, hopefully we can walk the walk. That's the challenge, not just to talk the talk. And so this challenge that sets before the people in Micah's time is also something that we can take some of the moral core of that for ourselves as well. To act justly means for us to have a go at protecting people from being exploited and mistreated. As much as we can, if there's room for us to help look after people, that's a call for us as well. To love mercy means that involves us being the kind of people that God desires us to be, those who are faithful, loving and show care for others. That's, that's our challenge as well. And finally, to walk humbly with our God reminds us, it actually reminded me a bit of the Lord's Prayer when Jesus says, you know, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We don't use words like hallowed very much in our society, but it's saying make your name holy and seek to do his will on earth as it is in heaven. That's the challenge to walk humbly with God, to, do, to make God's will, at least seek God's will. That's, that's, our, that's our call. The tone shifts again now in the book after these challenges. In verses 9 to 16, Michael returns to the theme of God's justice. Point three in my sermon outline, ready for you to tick off. He's here, we see that God's covenant justice would be realised. And the readers of this book, it was written over the series, a series of kingships over a series of times. Uh, some of the records were written earlier and later and they're compiled together. But the readers of this book are challenged to learn from Israel's failure and also God's justice. We've already noted verses 10 to 12, which illustrated their lack of justice. But now in verses 14 and 15, what we see is the threat of exile looms large in verse 13. Therefore, I have begun, begun to destroy you, to ruin you because of your sins. You'll eat but not be satisfied. Your stomach will still be empty. You'll store up but save nothing because what you save I'll give to the sword. You will plant but not harvest. You will press olives but not use the oil on yourselves. You'll crush grapes but not drink the wine. This is a message of an outworking of the terms of God's covenant made 
with Israel. We read it about in Deuteronomy 27 and 28. It reflects the covenant curses for disobedience. There's blessings if they walk with the Lord. There's a sacrificial system for them to maintain their relationship with God. But if they forsake the Lord, they're warned that they will be turfed out of the land. And it's a horror story. Uh, it concludes by saying you'll, you'll find yourselves in slavery somewhere, but to cap it all off, there'll be no one to buy you. And the kind of idea is you're going to starve to death or die of thirst. It's just dreadful. Again, we see that idolatry is another reason given for God's judgment here in verse 16. You've observed the statutes of Omri, all the practices of Ahab's house. You've followed their traditions. And those two rotten kings of Israel didn't get a good rap. Omri, we're told in one kings, did evil in the eyes of the Lord and sinned more than all those before him. That's what gets written down in history for Omri. And King Ahab's not much better. He goes off and uh, marries Queen Jezebel, who's a wicked woman and a Baal worshipper, hardly a good choice for a wife. Um, furthermore, he goes and then murders innocent uh, Naboth and uh, knocks him off just to get his vineyard. And Micah's saying, well, that's what Israel's become like. King Omri, he's an idol worshipper and he's got more sin than the rest of them. And Ahab is taken down the weak. This is the state of play in Israel. And so in this section, we see there's a message of God's judgment to Israel for that kind of sin. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, when we start to think about uh, judgment and justice. On the one level, we can actually appreciate the idea of justice pretty well, can't we? If somebody crashes into your car and if they're at fault, it's only fair that you expect them to pay for the damage. We get that. If someone wrongs us, we, we appreciate some kind of justice. It's interesting to note uh, in the media, the Brittany Higgins trial seems to have been abandoned because she seems to be at risk of suicide. And at some level, this seems to be a problem, doesn't it? It seems to me that there's... I mean, whichever way things would have gone, it just doesn't look like there's an opportunity for justice. Yet, if we're in the wrong, we don't always want justice, actually. When it comes to God, the message from his word is that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The message is that we, like sheep, have gone astray. That's, that's, the, that's the picture of our hearts. And so ultimately, as um, sheep who've gone astray and those who've fallen short of the glory of God, we don't really want God's justice. If we, if we actually think about our hearts, our forgetfulness of God, if we think about the things that we've done that we're ashamed of, um, I don't know if you've ever asked anyone for forgiveness when you've actually done wrong in the past and made restitution. I, I did a bit of that this week, actually. Um, I got in contact with someone who I didn't think I did the right thing by and I recounted just my shortcomings and I asked for forgiveness of sorts. It was, it was a good little moment, actually. But um, what we want, we, we don't want justice, friends. The challenge from this word is that we actually want God's mercy. 
That's, that's what we were like. And the good news is Paul talks about that in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, But God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And so God, in his kindness, doesn't actually offer us justice at one level. He offers us mercy for those who turn back, for those who repent. The promise is that God is rich in mercy. Isn't that a comfort? It's a relief as we think about our hearts. Well, I began this sermon by saying that uh, often we know what we should do, but we find reasons to do less important things, less urgent, less significant things. We know, we know what we should do, but we don't always do those things. Israel knew. They understood their responsibility to live faithfully to the Lord and faithfully to each other. They knew what they should have done, but they didn't carry out that call. And so Micah reminds them back to this moral core of what they should be doing, not just about the cultic worship and a a tokenistic approach to God, but to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with their God. And as the people today... The challenge is for us to uh, rise up to these qualities as well, to think about these qualities for our lives, to be of different character to the world, to bring honour to God's name, to be seen, to be those who are salt and light. That's the challenge and may in God's strength he help us to, be, to live that life which is worthy of the Lord. Let's, let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for this word today which reminds us of the, the rebelliousness of Israel in the past, but which is also a little window into the rebelliousness of our own hearts. And so, Lord, as we think about these things today, we pray that you'd forgive us for doing things superficially and for not loving you from the heart and for going through the motions, doing things perhaps as a routine. But, Lord, we pray that you'd help us to turn from that kind of approach, help us to live a life worthy of the calling we've received, that noble calling to be your people. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he bears our sins and that through him you've been rich in mercy to us. Lord, we thank you for this reminder today to to live differently. Help us to be mindful where possible that we can uh, do justice, do act justly. Help us to be people who reflect your character and your love, uh, both uh, in our walk with you and also in our care for each other here at church. And for the people who don't don't yet know you, Lord, for the people of the world that we seek to uh, love our neighbour. And Lord, we pray that you'd help us to keep walking closely with you for our whole lives. Help us not to fall away. Help us to persevere and press on as your people and help us to encourage each other to do that. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.